As a free, not-for-profit service, Cradio requires the support of people like you to help keep us going in our mission. To donate, visit cradio.org.au slash donate. Cradio. Sexuality and Identity. A testimony by James Parker at the 2018 Immaculata Mission School in Hobart, Tasmania. I am made for God's glory. Did we all just say that? Do we believe that? Jesse's speaking on behalf of all of you. Revelation chapter 12, verse 11 says, They have triumphed over him, over Satan, by the blood of the Lamb and by the word to which they bore witness. Because even in the face of death, they did not cling to life. I'd like to share a bit of my story with you. I hope that's okay. (laughs) Some of you want your money back if I don't. (laughs) I think mine's a pretty normal story, really, but some people tell me it's not. But it it feels normal because it's just me and my skin. Um, Sister Mary Manuel, thank you. You're there. That line, I made for God's glory. I don't want to lose that. Because, you know, my life began um, really being smothered in lies. And the lie I was told is that basically I was a glorious ruin. And that I was to glory in my ruin. You see, Satan's very, very sneaky. He steals and kills and destroys and lies. The father of lies. And he steals kills, destroys, and lies under the name of Lucifer. Have you ever thought about what the word Lucifer translates as? It means light and fire. That's what it means. Luce, fair, whatever, you know, different languages, light and fire. And so what happens is Satan seeks to shine, or he can't shine at all. Satan seeks to take that which is light, and Simon, you did a beautiful job of reminding us several times yesterday, Satan can create nothing, he can only twist. You can only twist what's good. I was told I was ruined glory. Sorry, I was told I was glorious ruin. But the truth is, is that I, our lives begin as ruined glory through original sin. So how did my life begin? Kind of in a bit of a challenging situation, really. Um, my mother, um, from a place called Birkenhead, near Liverpool. Have you ever heard people talk like that? Like, Normin, all right, girl. It's like Greta, isn't it? Like, Normin, any. Because they do it all, don't they? Anyway, that's how my family talks like. Okay. So my mother was basically dancing to the Beatles. She loves me, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, when skirts are becoming like the size of a belt. And um, this is in the late 60s. Yeah, I'm that old. And um, basically, she got married at the age of 20. And she married um, a man who was very challenging. Uh, and he was violent towards her, and she left him. And I make it very clear when I share any of this story, I say, no woman should hang around with a man who's violent. Full stop. And gentlemen, the same is true for you. Don't hang around with a woman who's violent. None of us are worthy of violence. Okay. Anyway, she, um, my mother left him when she was 24. And then she had a, a love affair for three weeks at the age of 26, when she's still singing, she loves me, yeah, yeah, and all the rest of it. Or let it be, whatever. She found herself pregnant after those three weeks. 
and her boyfriend, her lover, had gone back to his country of origin. He was a foreign man. Um, we're talking late 60s here, a time when the abortion law changed in the UK and became legal. There was some, some pressure on her to consider abortion, even in those circumstances. She made a decision now, a valiant decision, I have to say. Um, moving on a little bit, she gave birth to myself seven months later. I say myself, clearly she gave birth to me. And then as she gave birth to me, the, the nurses and doctors said, you've got twins. She didn't know. There was no ultrasound in those days. She gave birth to my twin sister. So there we both were, just over a kilo each. So we're two months premature, and she literally left us there as she gave birth to us. I've since found her, we found her, and she said to me, I couldn't bear to look you in the eye in case I connected with you. So literally she left us there at the hospital, naked, no clothes, nothing. So in a sense, we were homeless, we were naked, and we were hungry. God provided. Because that's what he does. In the most vulnerable moments of your life, God provides. We were incubated for three months. We were then fostered for three months. And because I am mixed race, I look at, don't I, not anyway. Well, it depends where you come from. Um, uh, Nobody wanted, to, uh, nobody wanted to adopt us, the twins, who'd been small and sickly, if you like. So then we were in an orphanage for a time before eventually a couple called Mr. and Mrs. Parker, surprise, surprise, decided to adopt us. They had three of their own children, a five-year-old, a three-year-old, and a two-year-old, and they chose to adopt twins of six months. For me, they're my modern-day saints. The sacrifice they made, that situation. And then you think that life would sort of became pretty normal, really. I ended up um, uh, being raised in an Anglican family. And I've got to say this, the Anglican church where I was raised in the UK, the Catholics were opposite and the Pentecostals were next door. So you've got these three buildings literally beside each other, okay? Well, this was England, okay? And I'm Anglican. I'm Anglican and England kind of go together, okay? And my parents used to say, See that building over there? Say, so, yeah, that's Catholic. <laughs> yeah. They light candles and worship saints and stuff. Be very wary of them. <laughs> okay. Do you see that building there? Yeah. That's Pentecostal. They put their hands in the air for three hours and have the windows open and really annoy the neighbors with all their loud music. <laughs> Be very wary of them. <laughs> now, of course, today I'm a Pentecostal Catholic, and you wonder why. Anyway, there we are. But so I am a Pentecostal Catholic. But, um, but overall, what happened is I was raised with the gospel of Jesus. Okay? Every Sunday. Every Sunday morning, Anglican communion service. Every Sunday evening, even song, reciting the Psalms, another sermon, you know, and, uh, and all the rest of it. Uh, my, me and my brothers and sisters, we were all in the choir, so we were singing to God, hearing God, getting up early on Sunday morning, go to God, and last thing on Sunday night was God. It, was, it just felt like it was God, God, God. I was sent to an evangelical primary school. It was all boys. But before I tell you about that, let me step back just one little bit. There were two very defining moments that happened in my life before I went to all boys primary school at the age of six. The first time when I was three years of age, and I was in kindy, 
Okay. Now, you might say, gosh, do you remember that far back? Actually, no, I didn't remember that far back. But the Holy Spirit remembered that far back. And in later life, he exposed to me that experience that I had there in kindy. And it was a profound experience for me. Because what happened is this is I was there one day as you are at kindy and the boys tend to be with the boys, you know, throwing Lego at each other and doing what they do, you know. And the girls are there generally playing the dolls, whatever it might be. And at one point, my twin sister walked up to me with a pile of girls. Now, we're three years of age. You've seen the little kids running around. They're cute ass, okay? And I was there, my platinum blonde hair and my blue eyes. And my twin sister walks up to me, and she's got platinum hair, platinum blonde hair and blue eyes. And she goes, look, she said, from behind me. And she pulls my trousers down. I happened that one particular day to be wearing a pair of my sister's pink frilly knickers that my mother's put me in. Okay? You'll go, <gasps> you can feel the shame, can't you? You know, it's like, whoa. And all the boys went, <laughs> perhaps not with that deeper voice. <laughs> and the girls did the same. I felt absolutely humiliated. What I do remember is being given the biscuit tin and a big glass of milk and told, have as much of anything you like. I knew something had gone wrong. Because I was being placated, if you like. That was one memory. The next thing is, at the age of um, four, four and a half, whatever, I, I, my first year in primary school after kindy, um, because I was so connected to my twin sister, is my, um, my parents decided to send me to an all-girls school. There were two other boys out of the 400 or so girls, Okay. But that was the place where I first went. So my first experience really of schooling was ballet and bunny rabbits rather than footballs and bruising and the rest of it that boys would generally uh, experience. This was beginning in some way to form the idea that I was a glorious ruin. At the age of six, I went to an all-boys school. It was hell for me. Naturally, I was given all the girls' parts in the place and I managed to make a really good mate who was called Tim. And Tim copied all my work and I copied all Tim's work. And, you know, we just became really, really close mates. Roll on two years. It was a difficult time for me, but roll on two years. I began to be sexually abused by one of the Christian teachers at school. Every Friday, he was getting the boys to be led to Jesus, but behind closed doors, he was basically telling me my Bible, my scripture work was not good enough. And he would then take me to various hidden and secret places and he would sexually abuse me. And he'd say, this is because your scripture work is no good. See how the devil can work. Take something beautiful and life-giving to turn it and twist it as Simon reminded us of yesterday as well. That went on for me for three years and I never told anybody at all. But I lived with it. It happened every week, at least once a week. Alongside that, because I'd been sexualized at such a young age, and of course, I was trying to keep the lid on all this stuff that was in me. Is one of my older brothers, older friends. He was 13 when I was eight. He too began to sexually abuse me. And that went on for three years as well alongside it. At the age of 16, when I was 11, he dropped me like a hot cake because he got a girlfriend. He didn't really want me. He wanted a girlfriend. And I was the access he could have to before that. You can see how the world is beginning to, in a sense, spin a web around my own life. We sang there about the love being in the hurricane, but Jesus holds us there at the eye. At the eye of the hurricane, there is perfect peace, but if you're not in the eye of the hurricane, man, 
that can be challenging and very, very difficult. And my life is beginning to spiral further and further and further up the hurricane. At the age of 11, it's a long story, so I'll keep it very short. There was a bit of a crisis in the school itself, and a kid had a breakdown, another lad in my year. And the rumor went around he'd been interfered with, which made me tell my friend Tim, that's been happening to me. Tim made me literally push me into the head teacher and say, tell him. Of course, I'd just gone bang into the head teacher, which you shouldn't do anyway. <laughs> he goes, Parker, what's your problem? Can I talk to you, sir? Yes, you may. He said, well, what's it about? And I said, it's about this teacher. He said, come and talk to me. I told him about all that had gone on. The teacher was removed. Thanks be to God. Nobody ever spoke another word to me, ever. I was left, basically. That's it. Teacher's gone. Everything's fine. I'm deliberately sharing this with you because of the climate that our church is also in today. Is in some way that we feel like, oh, the church has been so irresponsible. And I'm not going to turn around and say whether the church has or not. There's aspects of the church have been irresponsible. I mean, some aspects have been incredibly responsible. But I'll say this is, there was a climate going on 30, 40 years ago that you, many of you have got no idea what it was like. That's all I'm trying to say. It was, the, people weren't facing real issues head on for a long time. Um, when the teacher left, I gave my life to Jesus. I had the opportunity to make a choice to follow Jesus and I said, yes, that Friday lunchtime, few weeks after he'd left, I, went, I continued to go to that meeting, even though he'd been there all those years. I went to it and I said yes to Jesus. But nobody ever followed up on that decision. So therefore, I was there hoping that somehow or other, the pain and the agony deep within me was going to rise up and would leave me, but it didn't. And I began to feel, maybe therefore there is something deeply wrong with me. At the age of 13, I got a scholarship. I left the boys' school. And I got a scholarship to an Anglican school and a Catholic school. I said to my parents, which one do I take? They said, well, it's up to you. If you go to the Anglicans, you're there on your own. If you go to the Catholics, you go with your twin sister. I'm like, yeah, I want to be my twin sister. So I went to the Catholics, but I was told to be very wary of them. <laughs> and I found myself in a Jesuit school. Some of you heard about the Jesuits. You know, our Holy Father's a Jesuit. Um, some great Jesuits. There's some Jesuits I'm really worried about, but that's another thing altogether. We'll leave that at the side. Um, but I went to a Jesuit school, and of course, um, uh, when you're a Protestant in a Catholic school, you're going to prove to all of them how just wrong the Catholics are. Of course, they were just reeling me in all the way. So I was therefore exposed to just imagery Beautiful imagery that spoke of the heavenly realms. Um, the school was called Mount St. Mary's. So every direction we looked at, there was a statue of Mary looking down upon me. And our lessons began with the Hail Mary, which of course I didn't know and I definitely didn't say because it was Catholic. <laughs> Life seemed pretty hunky-dory, etc., what I didn't tell you is this, is at the age of eight, I was exposed to pornography by my older brother's friend. Literally, he was feeding me pornography all the time, all the time. He was stimulating that which was a holy part of me that was meant for marriage. And it was being taken advantage of in the wrong way and the wrong place. By the time I hit 14, I was absolutely addicted to hardcore pornography. And I found a couple of guys at school. It was a boarding school for the most part, although I was a day boy. 
and they learned to get stuff shipped in from all sorts of countries. It's amazing what teenage lads can work out when they need to. All I can say is this, is my life began to spiral downwards. I was in such pain from some of the incidents of my childhood um, that I discovered the drinks cabinet at home. Uh, and I learned how to be able to take a drop of gin and a drop of whatever and add a drop of cold tea to the whiskey bottle and I'd had a couple of drinks and a bit more water to the vodka bottle and whatever it was. And I learned to make alcohol in my home. And before you know it, my life literally was becoming numb, more and more numb and numb and numb because my pain was so great. All the time I'm being exposed to Catholic spirituality. I'm also watching some of my mates at school go to this thing called confession. Why just don't just go straight to Jesus? I mean, that's, Catholics are funny, aren't they, you know? Anyway, um, <laughs> where I thought. But I noticed something about these guys when they went to confession. And I noticed that they were leaving, that, that the guys who regularly went and they'd creep out from studies and go into this confession thing, there was something different about them. I know this, by the age of 17, I hit a point, I was so hungry so hungry inside to find, to, to find a sense of resolution to all my pain that I actually went and I knocked on the door of one of the priests, an elderly man who was 82. He'd been a prisoner of war with the Japanese. And if you know anything about prisoners of war in Japan, it's vile. This man was love on legs. He'd forgiven everybody. And he was free. Everybody. This man, 82, he could look you in the eyes and you knew he loved you like you didn't even love yourself. And I knocked on his door. I said, well, I, I want this confession thing. He said, well, you better come in. You're, you're Anglican, aren't you? I said, I am. He said, well, sit down. He said, well, what do you, what? He said, well say a little prayer. And then you tell me what it is that, why you're here. So we said a little prayer. And then I went, <laughs> vomited all my stuff out over him. Then about 45 minutes later, I said, but I came for confession. I don't really know what, that's, what that is. He said, you've just done it. <laughs> uh, and he said um, uh, I don't know he used words similar to I'm not sure I'm supposed to absolve your sins or not he said but you're repentant and I forgive you and God forgives you and I walked out of that man's room and I was 18 feet 12 feet off the ground 18 I'd have hit my head they were high buildings let me assure you but anyway <laughs> that's what it felt like it was around this time as well that I'd become so sexualized and I'd become so um, I'd learned what it was to not feel my heart to not really face what was going on inside of me that I'd really begun to believe that lie that I was a glorious ruin that I was drinking so heavily that at the age of 16 I went to um, a party with other people uh, there were some other teachers there from my school and I one night I drank half a bottle of whiskey at 16 and I was raped by one of my teachers. I went to see another teacher when I was 17 and said, look, this thing has happened. It's really, it's, it's causing me incredible pain deep within me. How do I deal with this? I'm sort of in year 11 at this stage. And I went to see this other teacher and he said, well, the problem is this, is you just didn't have a good experience. And basically he then took advantage of me as well. This began to consolidate within me the sense that clearly I must be a gay man. So at the age of 17, I came out to mum and dad and I said, I'm gay. In floods and floods of tears. And my parents said to me, we know. We know. At this stage, I've literally, I might as well have been raised in the girls' school the whole way along. I'm as camp as can be. That means I'm 
I've got, my wrist hasn't got any control, control on it to some extent. I was just very, very feminine, very, very effeminate. And um, uh, so my parents said, yes, we know. And James, we love you and we accept you. And this is your home. And there was no condemnation of me. I came out to my mates at school. I was the first guy to come out publicly in a kind of a Catholic boarding school that I'm aware of, at least anyway, in the UK. And um, uh, my mates were great. I said, yeah, yeah, we all know. We love you. It's all right, mate, sort of thing, you know. And therefore, I began to take on this identity, an identity that was a world, a label in some way the world wanted me to have. Um, what I didn't tell you is at the age of 14, stepping back a little bit, particularly when uh, uh, I was really starting to get, to indulge in the really um, hardcore porno pornography stuff, is um, I actually did two things happen to me at the age of 14, aside from the pornography. One of them is that I actually went to an evening with the Methodist church. There's a big thing called God's Spell on. Some of you might have heard of it. And I watched God's Spell and I saw the life of Christ before me and my teenage heart leapt. I thought, I want that Jesus. And at the end, we were given the opportunity to go and give our lives to Jesus. And I said, that's what I want. So I ran down to the front and the man prayed with me. It was kind of Pentecostal-like. My parents weren't there. It's okay. Okay? He prayed with me. And I gave my life to Jesus again. And the, uh, the man, he was a policeman, he wrote a letter to me afterwards. And I thought, this is great. Because nobody had ever written a letter to me before in that way. And he never followed up. I was left alone again. Yet I'd made that commitment to Jesus. Another thing that happened at 14 is I called something called the Lesbian and Gay Switchboard in the UK. Uh, it took me about seven or eight attempts to call that number because I was scared stupid. Uh, and also... It, the number would have shown up on the, the, the telephone bill at home in those days, which wasn't very easy for me to explain myself. Um, but I called the number and I said, this is how I feel. This is what's going on. And somebody said, you are gay. That's who you are. So I, uh, I took that as, as another word to be who I was. So here I was being layered and layered and layered with these words. God moves in mysterious ways. Expect God to surprise you. So I was expected to do really well uh, in uh, my year 12 exams and go on to university. Um, and I did okay. I did really okay. And I got several offers from universities. There's many universities in the UK you can go to. And so I called my universities after I got my marks. And um, uh, my top two, both of them said to me, well, one of them said to me, um, oh, we think you might have too many points to come here, too many your grades might be too good. I'm like, how can your grades be too good to go to university? Get over it, you know? I'm like, what? Anyway, and I contacted the other university and said, look, I just want to confirm my place because I was a bit hesitant about this other one. And they said to me, oh, well, we're not really very sure you've got a place or not. I said, but you promised me a place if I, if I tick the boxes. Mm, we're, not, we're not sure. Call us back. I kept trying to call them back. Nothing came through. So I went to see my Jesuit headmaster, worried. I said, I don't know what to do. He said... Well, he said, there's a couple of places I know of in London. He said, you're Anglican, aren't you? I said, I am. He said, well, we'll try you for this Anglican college and we'll try you for this Catholic college. Guess which one I got. <laughs> Pretty obvious, isn't it? The amazing thing was this is I said, and I remember praying, said, Lord, it's in your hands. I was still believing in God, still trusting in him, but I couldn't see his hand on my life. I went out to the interview I came back to, I, uh, I was in, in London, I lived in the north of England, so I went back to the north of England, and literally as I got home that day, I'd been for an interview with the Catholics and with the Anglicans, I got back that day, 
And literally the phone rang. I picked it up. They said, it's the Catholic college. We've got offering you a place. You've got to tell us now whether you'll accept it. And I thought, I want to go to uni. I said, yeah, I'll take it. Okay. We'll send the paperwork through to you. I put the phone down as I put it down. That's the old days when they had telephones, remember? The old days when we don't... Anyway. <laughs> I put the phone down and it literally rang as I placed it down. I picked it up. They said, it's the Anglican College. We'd like to offer you a place. I said, tough, the Catholics got me. <laughs> now hear me, I'm in pain. Nobody knows this. I've done well, I got a scholarship to, second, to secondary school and this rubbish is going on. I'm in absolute agony. I've got a drinking habit that nobody's really seen or realized. I've got a stash of pornography. I mean, my parents would give me money for, to go and buy clothes. I'm like, oh, I lost the money. I didn't lose the money. Buying hardcore porn. That's what was beginning to feed my soul. I went to university at 18 in pain. I came out with a brilliance. I'm gay, this is me, it's who I am. I was the college queer, the first guy ever to come out of the university. There was no equity diversity department and coffee machines in the corner with nice rainbow flags saying, come in, you know, none of that. Spiler guy said, college queer, all right, James, all right, mate. You know, that was me. And I made a point in this Catholic college of turning around and saying, you guys have got to wake up and your religion's got to wake up to who we are and where we are, etc." I was out with a vengeance because I was in so much pain. I was willing to vomit that everywhere, even though I'd had that much of it lifted through the confessional. I was promiscuous for a time. I went out there, I just embraced whatever was going, whatever the world had. But you know what? I was still praying. And I was praying that God would send me Mr. Right. Can you pray that prayer? Well, I was. <laughs> I was praying God to send me Mr. Right. And um, I met a really wonderful man called Steve. And Steve and I kind of settled down together. Steve, Steve was a great guy. Steve had been a soldier, okay, so he was this kind of big, tough guy. And um, he'd come out away from the Falklands War and got his medals. And I was just sort of, I'm gay, you better believe it. They're like, yeah, we really know it. It's okay, don't worry, you know. Um, and Steve went, oh, hi. I went, oh, hi, you see. Bang, we were together. I was still praying, even though God had in some way answered my prayer, I was, still, I was still yearning for God. I was still yearning. The pain inside of me, the turmoil inside of me, the hurricane inside of me did not disappear just because I, I found Steve. It can't to some extent, but I found myself for the first time committed to somebody who understood to some extent my pain, but the pain didn't go away. It was there at that university, at that stage, that somebody approached me one day. I said, what are you doing Friday night? What you don't know is I always worked Friday night. My night for getting my beer money. I needed that money so I could drink. Um, I said, I'm not doing anything this Friday night. So would you come along with me to a, a gathering of young people? Not too dissimilar to here. It was called a Life in the Spirit seminar. Many of you will have heard of it. I had no idea what it was. And I got no idea it was Catholic, so I wasn't going to tell my parents, you know? I went along to this thing and I saw young people like yourselves worshipping the Lord. And I turned around after about three weeks and I thought, okay, it's time for me to make that decision again. And I made it, I'll be honest with you, with quite despair in my heart. I thought, I've done this before, but I've got nowhere else to go. Lord, to whom else shall we go? Only you've got the words of eternal life. Nobody else told me they had those, so I thought, well, I still better believe in you. I made a prayer of repentance. I said, if anything stands in the way of your love, come and meet me. 
Remove that so that your love can reign in my life. I was like a brick. Guess what I felt? Nothing. But I made that decision. And I tell you this very deliberately because God takes an act of our will very, very seriously. Because he loves us infinitely. And we say yes to anything that's of his kingdom and he responds to that as well. So what happens to me is there I am, this broken kid who's as loud as can be. Yes, I've quietened down. Hard to believe, but I have. This broken kid and basically his love starts to move in me. I learn to pray for two minutes a day and to sit still. A miracle in its own right for me. I learned to build that up to three, four, five, seven, eight, nine minutes a day. Within six or seven weeks, Steve says to me, my boyfriend, there's something different about you. Is it that Friday night thing you go to with those other Catholics? I said, yeah. Can I come along? He said, I said, yeah. He comes along. He gets blitzed with Jesus. We become this archetypal, this model gay Christian couple in London. Steve's elapsed Catholic, okay? Don't tell my parents. He goes back to Mass. I start attending Mass regularly with him. And suddenly here I am before the person of Jesus Christ and the Blessed Sacrament. And I've seen this, there was this um, metal thing sometimes on the altar with this bit of bread in the middle. And um, I used to go along and I think, that's really beautiful. It just looks lovely. And I noticed that whenever I have to spend a little bit of time there, that I used to feel different afterwards. Anyway, I made a mind at uni who was walking alongside me. He persuaded me to try and do my prayer time in front of this piece of metal thing. And um, got some fancy name, I, got, I couldn't pronounce it. And, uh, but I took his word, I trusted this man, because he, he, I could see him walking with God. And I learned to go and sit before the monstrance with the blessed sacrament there. And I learned to sunbathe, or sunbake, I think as we say in Oz, more like. I learned to bake before the sun. Now, if you can sit out there, even a pale-faced palm can get a bit of a tan in this country, you know? Um, don't tell me you can't sit in front of Jesus and literally his presence permeates and affects you. And I came to understanding that's what was happening to me. And literally, I began a journey as I went more and more intimately into the Catholic faith. And as I began to spend more time in prayer with Jesus and in the word, veils began to lift from my eyes. And I began to set my life against every single part of the word of God. And something amazing happened to me. The Lord began to show me my relationship with Steve. Now we're praying every day. We are this great gay Catholic couple and we were considering going getting a blessing in the Netherlands because they were offering them at that time in the church in the Netherlands to gay couples. And... Um, <clears throat> Uh, what happened there is, um, uh, is the Lord began to show me that Steve was looking for something in me that I was looking for in Steve, and neither of us had it. We were both looking for the mystery of our own manhood in each other, because somewhere deep, deep down it had been wounded and we got stuck. And the Lord is then saying to me, I want you to leave behind all your group here, all the group where you've been actively gay and as a gay activist and all that, I want you to leave Steve, I want you to leave everything for me. Now my parents had been concerned because there I was in the mid-late 80s in London where HIV and AIDS was pretty rife. It was a difficult time. 
I chose to leave Steve and I chose to leave the gay lifestyle and I chose, I chose Jesus above all things. My parents are more worried about me praying every day with Catholics than they were about me being in the gay community. I mean, that's what it was like in somewhere that. But I made that decision. And I tell you that for a reason, because for some of you, you've been making decisions and you've had an experience here this time. And when you leave here, you may be asked to clearly make a decision for Jesus that's paramount. And I'm saying this to you very clearly, I hope. If he's calling you to make that decision, make it. Because you are made for glory. As I pushed all that aside, as I made Christ my identity, my first and foremost identity, I began to walk a journey. And the Lord began to peel back more and more and more of the veils that were over my eyes. And basically he was saying to me, you need to renew your mind. Every single thought, as it says in 2 Corinthians, needs to be taken captive. So I began literally to take God's word and everything in God's word I compared myself to it I'm not check, check, checking my text message I just want to read some of God's word God's word said to me he said James you're God's child because you've been born again not through perishable seed or human sperm but through imperishable seed through the living and enduring word of God 1 Peter 1 verse 23 I had to grieve the start of my life and realize actually God hadn't made a mistake in the circumstances of my birth. He'd called me into being. And that was enough. And I had to learn to let go of the lie that really I was illegitimate and perhaps I wasn't wanted and all these different things. I had to let go of that. He said to me, James, he said, you've been forgiven of your sins and you've been washed in the redeeming blood of Jesus. So whatever in your life has been wounding, has been difficult, whatever it is, wherever there's been tragedy, wherever you have really, really messed up. The forgiveness of sins waits for you and I'm waiting to wash you with my precious blood. He said to me in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, he said, James, I've made you into a new creation. Will you be that or will you stay as a glorious ruin or will you come with your ruined glory and let me wash you with your blood and literally I took word after word after word from God's book and I submitted I put under God's word every thought I had about myself and I grieved some of the years that the locust had eaten as it says in the book of Joel um, chapter 2 and what happened is bit by bit by bit, as I brought my pain and my tragedy before the Lord, things began to change. And I had a point at the age of 24, I got a decision that I had to make. And that decision was, I'm hanging around at Mass, I'm praying my rosary daily. I'm not just hanging around, I'm like, I'm running to Mass almost every day. Do I become a Catholic or not? Don't tell my parents. <laughs> I went to the RCIA course. I loved it. I learned so much through it. If you're not sure about your Catholic faith, go to it. You haven't got to just be becoming a Catholic. We're all becoming more and more Catholic all the time. More truly who we are, the magisterium of the tradition, God's word, etc. So I went along to the RCIA course and um, it, was, it, was, it was amazing. 
And even the night of the Easter Vigil, when I was to go and be received in the Catholic Church, I said to some of my mates, I may not, I may not do this still. It's up to you, James. We're praying for you. Literally that night, um, at the end of being received into the church, I fell to the ground and I wept and I wept and I wept and I knew I'd come home. I knew it. I was age 24. What had helped this is about a year or so previously, I'd been in prayer. Now, you've got to remember, I'm this kind of camp guy, okay? By the age of 18, I was wearing makeup, you know, and there was a time I thought I was actually a woman trapped in a man's body. There's a few of those floating around today. That's talk for another time. Um, what I know is this is, um, I remember going to Jesus and saying, Jesus, I have no idea what it means to be a man. And almost with an audible voice, I don't hear voices, don't lock me up, please, um, but almost with an audible voice, I had a sense, a very strong sense of the Lord saying to me, go to my mother. Now, I'm not a Catholic at this stage, and I'm like, whoa, that's a bit too Catholic for me because that's like the church over the road, you know? Now, I've learned to accept this Holy Spirit thing from the church next door, but the church over the road, you know, and this country was split because of those Catholic people, etc. Anyway, but literally the Lord hounded me, and I'm sharing this very, very deliberately with you, because what happened is the Lord was saying to me, literally, until you know my mother, you cannot know who you are. And I had a, um, a song on a, a CD at the time. Actually, it was called a cassette. They're even more older than the telephones that went down, but don't worry about it. And this song was called Gracious Lady. And the chorus went like this. He said, Gracious Lady, woman clothed with the sun, be a mother to me, be a woman to me, be a wife to me. Fill me up with your motherliness. Fill me up with your, with your womanliness. Fill me up with your wifeliness. Fill me up. And I learned just to play this song in my prayer time. It seemed like an easy prayer time in some other. But I, but I literally was just allowing the Spirit of God to soak with me. Something happened to me that was about a millisecond. That's a thousandth of a second. It was so, but it happened. And it's as though I was in the presence of Mary herself. And for the first time in my life, I recognized this perfect purity. And I knew that I was not pure. But I was in the, full, the presence of the fullness of woman. And I knew I was not woman. That day, something snapped inside of me. And I had no choice but to turn on and say, today's the day I begin to step into manhood in a whole new way. And I received her motherliness into my heart. And I received her womanliness and accepted her for who she was into my heart. And I received her wifeness into my heart. And I knew that day that I could be married. Even though there I was totally same-sex attracted. And I knew it. Like God had revealed something to me. I walked that journey with Mary. I became Catholic at 24. Then at 25, I got a job in the Vatican. Because you do, don't you? Six months after <laughs> I know, I know, don't go there. Anyway, um, and um, there were a number of very significant things happened to me. I worked three years in the Vatican. But three very significant things happened to me. One of them is this. Within six months of being there, I was attending daily mass and we had a, an office, uh, uh, we had a basement in the office, a big, big table and we'd throw the altar cloth on there and we'd sit around this big table together it was rather neo-catechumenal in some way. We sat there and, and then we'd celebrate Mass. As soon as the Word of God began, now at this stage I'm praying for at least an hour a day. 
hear me. I'm spending an hour of prayer a day. Many of you have spent more time in prayer here than you've spent in a lifetime. But it feel great. <sighs> All is well with my soul. Because I'm taking the time to be with I am. He who is. I was there. I would go to Mass and I'd be like, okay, Lord, bring it on. I'm at the wedding banquet. Let's get married. The word of God would be read and it would be like a double-edged sword. Father Stefan mentioned that earlier today as well. The double-edged sword cutting between the bone and the marrow and the spirit and the soul. And I would begin to weep. And I don't mean cry. I mean... <laughs> you know, now there's about eight different nationalities in my office. The British are not known for crying their eyes out publicly. And so are British men. And I'm like, <laughs> and the tears are dripping off my chin. And I'm hungering for the Eucharistic prayer. And I'm hungering for Jesus. Hear me in this. And literally my tongue's going. To receive of Jesus. I just said to receive of Jesus. I wasn't receiving Jesus. Jesus was receiving me. And every day at Mass for 18 months. I wept at Mass for 18 months in the bowels of the Vatican. The Lord had taken me away from my community of friends. I didn't want to go to Rome, I'll be honest with you. I didn't speak the language. It's very hot. Some Italians lie. A lot of Italians lie. No offence to Italians, but there we are. <laughs> Rome's a great place to visit. It's hell to live in, ask mother. Anyway. Um, <laughs> But there I was in the bowels, if sense, of Mother Church. I'd been drawn to Mother Church, and the Lord had drawn me to the Holy Father. He was giving me parents and saying, trust these parents. And it was there that basically for 18 months I wept and wept. And at the end when the tears stopped, I said, Lord, what was that about? He said, well, a couple of years ago you forgave all the people who'd sexually abused you and raped you. I needed to restore your body, James. And I needed to restore your dignity. Because you thought that you were glorious ruin. You were just ruined glory. And I want to reestablish within you the glory that I died for on the cross. So I'm feeding you with my body. And I'm feeding you with my blood. That you may have life within you. I love this body. I don't expect anybody else to, because they don't have to. But I do, because it's all I've got. And Jesus has made it wondrously, and I love every body here. Not just you as a person, I love every one of your bodies. You have no idea the work of art that you are, the masterpiece that you are. And if you don't know that, then you need to come and eat and feed more and more and more of the flesh and blood of Jesus Christ, in faith, believing that he will restore you to become the glory that he's made you to be. That was one experience. The other experience was this. Is I got a phone call at four o'clock one afternoon. It was a busy afternoon. And my Italian peasant nun was playing me up like Italian peasant nuns can. You know, She'd come in and want you know, 20 bucks to go and buy something small. And she'd spend the whole lot because she'd taken a vow of poverty. Anyway, there we are. Um, <laughs> then I got to explain to the accountant where the money had gone. Sister, come and sit down. Anyway... Um, Four o'clock in the afternoon, the phone rings. I pick it up, and um, there's this um, deep voice. And it sounds a bit Polishy, but it's in, uh, it's in Italian. 
wasn't the Holy Father. He said, um, um, uh, Senor Parker, that's what they call me, Mr. Parker, you know, Senor Parker, um, can you come with all the staff of your office tomorrow morning at seven o'clock because the Holy Father would like to celebrate Mass with you, etc." I'm like, oh, that'd be, that'd be great. Okay, yeah. And then he said, um, oh, and can you bring your guitar with you? This is only Polish-Italian. Can you bring your guitar with you? Oh, and play a, a, first so a, a song at the beginning, at the end, and then a nice communion song. I'm like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay. I said, what time? I said, seven o'clock, you know, by the, by the main fountain on, on the right. I said, okay. I put the phone down. Then my secretary walked into me. She said, who was that on the phone? Sort of thing. <laughs> Sylvia. I said, oh, some guy pretending to be from the Pope's office. He said, what do you mean? He said, said oh, I said, come to Mass tomorrow morning at 7 o'clock. Oh, that's wonderful. We all go to Mass. But, you know, I said, I said um, no, it's a joke. She said, well, how do you know it's a joke? I said, he told me to bring my guitar with me and play some music. He said, I didn't know you played the guitar. I said, nobody knows I play the guitar. I don't really play the guitar. I've been, I found an old one. I've been playing it in my lounge room, you know, in the morning. to try and worship the Lord. She said, oh, but what if it was the Pope? I'm like, yeah, you're right. That's really worrying. What if I don't turn up? <laughs> so I called the Pope's office. I've got the Vatican directory. So I called my friend Brian, who's one of the secretaries. Hello, James. You know, that's what Brian's like. Hello, James. So I called Brian. So Brian said, um, I just had a, a, a guy called Jeevich. He said, oh, yeah, yeah, Monsignor Jeevich. Yeah, 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 yeah. He said, he said, he just called me and said, can I, can I bring the staff tomorrow for Mass of the Holy Father? And can I bring my guitar with me and play some music? I said, yeah. He said, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He said, I said, well, he doesn't know I play the guitar. He said, oh, he does. I said, well, how does he know that? He said, well, I told him. <laughs> I said, well, how do you know I play the guitar? He says, I walk past your lounge window every morning. I can hear you singing to God. <laughs> Be careful where you play it when you're playing your instrument. Anyway, so the next morning, literally we went and we met there, sounds bizarre, with St. John Paul the Great. Okay? I was able to play, I was able to, to, to play it there at the front with, um, right beside him, etc. And then at the end he dismissed everybody and then he went to me, pointed me, said, come with me. So I thought, oh, excommunication. <laughs> New Catholic, not doing it very well, still got his learners on, you know. So, so I walk into his office like this, and he looks at me. I remember Chris Stefanik, whatever he said yesterday, said I was in a crowd of 750,000 people. And it felt like he was looking at me. And I mean, I just went, whoa, we said that, because I remember him looking at me. And I feel it even as I speak to you now. And he looked at me through the eyes and he said, thank you for your music. And then he walked up to me. Now, I, I'm normally the first person to instigate any hug. Some of you know me well. And he throws himself around me and he embraces me. And literally there I am, feeling like God himself has held me in his arms. And let me tell you, I thought that priest when I was 17 who'd been in the prisoners of war, that he'd seen hell. And he had. And he was love on legs, number one. John Paul II then, for me, was, was, was Love on Legs version number two in somewhere that he was the Lord loving me like crazy. That was the second experience. And um, gave me a beautiful medal. And, of course, on it it said, Totus to us, all yours. And there, suddenly, the Mother Mary's beginning to start to really loosen me up inside like crazy. A couple more stories, because I'm going to go to lunch. The next one is... Um, um, 
There's only one day I, I go to work in my shirt and tie and a suit, you know, pretty sharp, trying to look Italian but wasn't. Anyway, <laughs> do my best. Um, and I go off to work every day, it looked, you know, trying to be sharp as. And one particular day, um, I thought that there's another part of the basement, really messy and old and, and dusty and probably got some relics, I don't know, in there. But anyway, old place, I thought it needs clearing out. So it's the one day I put on my ripped jeans and my old smelly, dirty T-shirt. You know, lads, the one where you got the crispy underarms. You know what I'm talking about. <laughs> anyway, so, and I thought, right, today, no admin work today. This is the clear out day. You know, the trainers, with the running shoes with the bits cut off the front and I'm there, in there. And I'm moving all, the, moving all this stuff around. It's all dirty, etc. Cleared the place out, finished at four o'clock, which was early for me. And I thought, I'm tired, I'm dirty, I'm going to go home and, and get a shower. So um, I walked upstairs and I walked past this one of the offices and I said, um, I was kind of the office manager at that time. I said, what's that, what's that thing there? And uh, my Arge, this Argentinian lady worked there. She said, oh, somebody brought this thing for, uh, I can't do Spanish accent, you know. She said, somebody brought this thing for, um, for, uh, for Mother Teresa. It took for her house, to take to the house. I said, well, who's going to take it? She said, oh, I can't take it. I said, well, who else is going to take it? I think, don't know. Nobody could take it. I thought, I'll take it. To the mission is a charity. So I got this parcel, I'm mucky as. So I'm walking home. Smelly, sweaty, you know what it is. <laughs> Bit of a yob. I look like one of the homeless guys. Turn up to the mission as a charity by Vatican Square. Knock on the door. And sister, whoever it is, answers the door. I think she's from England, but they all sort of talk like this because they've been with mother, you know. Oh, yes, hello, James. How are you? you know, okay. I said, well, I've got this parcel for mother, you see. She says, oh, yes, yes, yes. Bring, come in, come in, come in. She turns around and walks off. I said, no, I'll just, I just, I'll leave it here. Look, I, I smell, I'm dirty. She's halfway down the corridor. So I'm like, okay, here we go. So I walked in, and I followed her along, and then we ended up um, at this courtyard, and she says, follow, 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 you see. So I, I walked along, and she walks to this courtyard of all these Italians, finely dressed, in a line. In a line. Italians don't stand in a line, they're just a big group of blah, 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 blah you know. <laughs> I'm getting worried. So I walk past this line of Italians, and I'm the sort of smelly guy with a parcel under my arm, you see. And sister's going, come, 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 you know. And, um, so I, I go in. I love Indians, by the way. I love, I love the curry. But anyway, uh, so uh, um, she, so she puts me in this room, and there's a crucifix, a couch, two armchairs, and nothing on the walls. Uh, and then there's this high window, a bit sort of high like that, and everything else is wall. And I'm stood there, and I hear all this screaming and shouting outside, welcome to Italy, you know. And I'm sat there and thinking, I've really got to get home. I'm smelly and dirty and sweaty. And there's a knock on the door. Not very big knock, and I'm like, avanti, in Italian means come in. The door opens. In walks Mother Teresa. <laughs> Saint Teresa of Calcutta walks in the room. Hello, James. How are you? I've never met him. I don't know if I'm Adam. But I knew it was her. This tall, wrinkled as, blue and white. And we sit down and we have a conversation for about 20 minutes. Two of us, just me and her. And we talk about the poor, and we talk about the gospel. And we share, and I said, look, I, I, I just bought this parcel from Father Tom, a guy called Father Tom Forrest, who she knew very, very well. And, um, and she said, and she said we, we must pray. I said, yes, let's pray. And she says, and I will pray for you. And um, I said, oh, thank you. So, uh, and we, st we stood up, and, uh, well, I kind of almost knelt down, because she could barely reach me. And um, I said that tongue-in-cheek, but, but she, and she just placed her hand on my head, and she prayed. And she said these words to me, which is why I know that what you were saying earlier is so right. And why I'm absolutely rejoiced to be in this setting here. Because she said, you know, our young people are called to be saints. And they don't know it. 
Go, she said. Tell them. Tell them they're called to be saints. We are all called to be saints. Now, if she couldn't deliver it to you at this stage, she gave it to somebody else to give to you. I'm just the vessel and the messenger. One of the other things that happened there for me in Rome. The other key thing is when I returned to the UK, and I'm really going to come into land now, we'll talk a bit more this afternoon. These are all the unexpected, surprising things of God. The day I was the dirtiest, smelliest, I was in the perfect place to meet Mother Teresa. All the people in the posh shirts and ties and the mink coats were all outside. They'd had their minute and a half scream and she'd walk past them and come to see me. It wasn't about me. It was about the fact that she'd got a message to be able to give. Basically, I'm saying it's in the times when we feel we are least acceptable, in the places when we are actually in feeling the poorest of all, when we feel that our dignity's all gone, that is the very place where God wants to meet you. And if you're not willing to go to that place, the Lord is just going to wait patiently. And he'll wait, and he'll wait, and he'll wait. Because you know, if he can take such a stinking sinner that didn't like the Catholic Church and all the rest of it, and he can do what he's done with my life, and by gum, as we say in England, I say, <laughs> I will say, <laughs> what can he do with yours? The last point is this, totus tuus. Thank you, Father Stefan, the reminder of the 33-day consecration. If your heart and your mind and your body and your soul and your whole being has not joined with Mary and you've accepted her for eternity, as your mother. I honestly do not believe the gospel can be rolled out in its fullness in your life. I don't believe that anymore. I tell you why I don't believe it is because I've worked with evangelicals and Protestants across the board. For three years I ran a program for sex addiction where Christ was central. And I realized this, that people would get well so far and then get stuck. The reason why I now understand why many didn't get fully well is because they'd failed to embrace the fullness of the gospel and to take to heart those words in John 19 where it says, Son, behold your mother. Mother, behold your son. And from that moment, John literally takes Mary into his own home, which means into his own heart. We are called to take Mary into our own heart. One of the key things that literally saved my life and has brought me back into a place of deeply understanding that I am glory. I'm on that journey, but who I am in the Lord's eyes is glory. But I am called to be a saint, whatever that means. But it's this, is Mary came in the pain of my beginning, of my conception, the beginning of my life. Mary came back and literally remothered me. I might share the bit of that story for this afternoon, but I want to leave you with that bit that literally there is no hidden thing in our life that God does not want to look at and not want to deal with. And he literally turns everything, however tragic, however painful, however ongoing, he turns it to good for those who love him. All things... Work together for my good. 
If you can take a tragic case like me and make it into a triumphant case like me, what can he do? And what is he doing in you? Because you are glory. You are glorious. And he wants you to step into that glory and share it with him. Mother Mary, thank you that you call us to be your children. I pray your mantle of motherly love this very moment over my brothers and sisters as we go for lunch. I pray that you would begin to stir in the depth of our hearts that we would be able to say, Fiat Domine. Your will, O Lord, your divine will done in my life. Begin to stir it now that no thing would be missing from us this day that you have planned for us. Mary, I ask this in Jesus' name. And Father, I also ask your blessing on the food and upon each one of us, but above all, that we would meet you in each other in this meal this afternoon. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Now as James Parker with Sexuality and Identity. This presentation was part of the 2018 Immaculata Mission School held in Hobart, Tasmania on the theme, Being a Disciple of Jesus. For more talks, interviews and shows, visit creadio.org.au.